Well, this morning we are picking back up in 1 Peter. Uh, we've been working our way through the letter of 1 Peter over this year, and you'll remember that this letter was written by the apostle Simon Peter to a group of churches who had been scattered across Asia Minor. Okay, this is modern-day Turkey. And these Christians likely fled from Jerusalem because of persecution from the Jewish leaders. We read in the book of Acts in chapter 8, after the stoning of Stephen, that there was a great persecution that arose uh, against the church in Jerusalem. And, and we read there that they were scattered to uh, regions of Judea and Samaria and further north than that, eventually to Asia Minor, where Peter's writing. And now these uh, Christians find themselves living among pagans, living among Gentiles who are also mistreating them, uh, who are also maligning them for not joining in with them in their pagan way of life. Their pagan neighbors consider these Christians to be strange. They think that they are odd. They seem... Uh, they see these Christians uh, as a threat to their way of life and to their society. And Peter is writing to them as they're undergoing these various trials, these slanders and temptations, okay, these uh, trials where people find their livelihood at stake or uh, potentially even ending up in court and having to give a defense for their behavior. Uh, they're undergoing various temptations to conform to the surrounding culture uh, so as to not provide an occasion for mistreatment or suffering, temptations to cave into the pressures of society around them. And Peter's writing to remind them who they are, who they are as the people of God, as the temple of God, uh, where they are going, where their hope is, what their future is, and how they ought to live in light of who they are as the redeemed people of God living among the nations. And Peter's writing this letter near the end of his life, so this would be the early 60s, which is just before uh, the great time of persecution that we read about from early historical sources. Um, in uh, AD 64, uh, the Roman emperor Nero blames the Christians for this great fire that consumes up to some historians say 70% of the city. Okay, so there's intense persecution just on the horizon. They're already experiencing some of this. And somehow Peter knows that this persecution is coming, that more persecution, greater persecution is coming for these Christians. And so he's writing to prepare them for it and to teach them about the meaning of this suffering, to teach them why would God allow his people to suffer in this way? What purpose could he possibly have in allowing this to happen? Now, we may be thinking, uh, what does this have to do with us today? Okay, this, this kind of thing sure happened in the early church, but what, uh, what could this passage possibly have to say to us here in America? Okay, we know that uh, this part of the early uh, story of the early Christians in the church uh, went this way, that there was great persecution uh, for the early church and even for the first 300 years, but this doesn't exactly line up with our experience today. Sure, we hear stories about our brothers and sisters in North Africa, in India or China, who suffer great persecution 
for the sake of the gospel. Okay, there's a great cost to their faith. But we could hardly describe our experience here as Christians in America as one of significant suffering or persecution with respect to the gospel. Okay, maybe we hear about small businesses or employees who have lost their livelihood as a result of the latest woke militia or woke agenda, and these make national news, and um, you know, those stories are certainly there, but for many of us, this is not a present reality, at least not yet. That may be on the horizon for some of us, uh, but at this point, intense persecution is not part of our everyday experience. So what does a text like this have to say to us? Okay, there are certainly different times and places where the realities that Peter describes here look different for different Christians. We live in a country in a time where many have been influenced by the gospel and the teaching of scripture to an extent that we don't experience great resistance or persecution at the level that Peter describes here. And in many ways, we're still riding on the coattails of Christendom, a Christian civilization. There's enough of a regard for religious liberty, religious freedom, that we don't experience this extreme hostility. Nevertheless, okay, all that granted, on this side of the final judgment, as long as there is sin and evil in the world, there will be opposition to Christ. There will be opposition to Christ's teaching and his ways. And ultimately, that means there will be opposition to his people. As long as there are those who hate God and his word, there will be resistance to those who bear his name. Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Christians in our context may not be experiencing great persecution at this moment in time, but Jesus said that as we are conformed to his image, as we submit to our master and become like him, the world will hate us. Okay? The world is going to hate you. The world hated him, and so the world will hate us too. We are not greater than our master, Jesus says. As long as there are those who oppose Christ, there will be those who oppose Christians. As we seek to live out our calling as the church to be conformed to the image of Christ, we will encounter those who hate that image and who set themselves against it. And we need the teaching of 1 Peter 4 to tell us how to think about that, how to respond rightly to that hostility. Whether we experience insults or slander, rejection or unjust treatment, Peter wants us to understand what it means when we suffer for the name of Christ. Okay, something as little as an insult counts as suffering in Peter's book. This morning I want you to see six things from this passage in 1 Peter and what it has to teach us about suffering as Christians. The first thing that Peter tells us about suffering as a Christian is that we should not be surprised when it comes. 
Do not be surprised when you suffer hostility or opposition for the name of Christ. Look at verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised by this, Peter says. Don't think it's strange that this is happening to you. Perhaps people think that Jesus suffered and died on the cross so that I don't have to. He did it for me. Jesus, didn't he suffer on the cross in my place? Doesn't that mean that I don't have to worry about persecution or hostility anymore? Doesn't becoming a Christian mean that my life is supposed to be great and easy and trouble-free from here on out? Peter says, no, don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes. It's not strange. Don't think it's strange. Yes, Jesus died and suffered in your place. He suffered for you so that you would be made right with God, forgiven of your sins, that you would share in his resurrection life. But he didn't die so that you would never experience suffering in this life. That is not what his death means for you. In fact, Jesus says that those who follow him need to take up their crosses and follow him down the path to suffering. Those who follow Jesus are called to take up crosses. Being a Christian means that your life will not be easy from here on out. As long as sin and evil remain in the world, both in your flesh and out there, there will be hostility and resistance to Christ. There will be a struggle against sin both internally and externally. So it's not strange that those who hated Christ will also hate you. Peter says that's not strange. The fiery trial, the hostility, that's not strange. What's strange is you. You have become strange. You are now strange to your pagan neighbors. Okay? That is why it isn't strange to expect resistance and hostility. In chapter 2, Peter calls the church strangers and exiles, okay, foreigners, sojourners. In one sense, that's just a literal statement about who they are. They came from another land that's not their hometown, and they're sojourning among people who are not their uh, native people. But there's also a deeper sense in which Peter uh, means that. They belong to a different realm. They belong to a different order, a different way of life, a different kingdom. And that is strange to those who hate Christ and hate God. Earlier in chapter 4, he says that their pagan neighbors are surprised or they think it's strange when you do not join in with them in their flood of debauchery living in sensuality, passions, and drunkenness. Okay, they think you are weird. They think you are weird for not joining in. You have become strange to them. And so they malign you and they ridicule you for it. When we are loyal to Christ and his ways, we will encounter opposition from those who hate the light. When you are bearing the light of Christ in your life, those who live in darkness will hate that light. Don't be surprised when it comes. Don't be surprised when that happens. Peter calls this persecution a fiery trial. He has a specific metaphor in mind here that you may have noticed uh, in the readings, uh, but even a, a metaphor that he's already used in this letter. Peter's using the metaphor of the refiner's fire. The refiner's fire. Think about a refiner who 
purifies precious metals. A refiner uses intense heat to separate impurities from precious metals, such as gold or silver. And this process proves the metal's genuineness. The extreme heat causes the dross to float to the top of the molten gold so that it can be removed and it can be made more pure, more genuine. And what remains is the purified gold. What remains is the pure glory. Listen to how Peter puts it in chapter 1. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, these trials are purifying and proving your faith. These trials are coming upon you to test the genuineness of your faith. And God is the refiner who is working these fiery trials to purify your faith and prepare you for glory, prepare you for the praise and glory and honor that comes when Jesus is fully revealed. And as you continue to cling to Christ in the midst of these trials, they will result in that praise and honor and glory. As Peter says, you will not be put to shame when he comes. Though these trials are coming to you through wicked uh, pagans who hate the light, they're the ones who are bringing the trial to you. Peter says, ultimately, it is the Lord who is sovereignly working these circumstances. They're bringing it. But the Lord's behind it. He's working it for their good. Think about Joseph and his brothers at the end of the story in Genesis. Uh, He says to his brothers, you'll remember, he says, you meant this for evil. Okay, brothers, when you sold me into slavery, when you were trying to get rid of me, you meant this for evil. But God meant this for good. He's the refiner overruling this suffering for your eternal good. He's using the insults and the slanders and the unjust treatment of the wicked to purify you. Don't be surprised when they come, Peter says. It's part of God's plan. Secondly, Peter tells us when we suffer as Christians, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed to suffer for the name. Verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed but let him glorify God in that name. When you suffer as a Christian, you're bearing the name of the Messiah. You are bearing the name of Christ. Peter says, do not be ashamed of that name. Don't be ashamed. Boldly glorify God under the banner of Christian, under the banner of Christ's name. Don't shrink back when people mock you for being a Christian. You're just a Bible thumper holier than thou, you're just too uptight, a fundamentalist bigot. Don't shrink back from that. Own that. Don't try to hide the fact that you belong to Christ. And all that you do in this life is for the purpose of bringing glory to Him. He is your King. He has redeemed you. He is the rightful King over all the earth. Don't be ashamed to confess your allegiance to him. The world doesn't recognize his lordship yet, but we have the true perspective. We know that every knee will bow to King Jesus. And we come into this sanctuary 
and everything's clear. We know the true outcome. We dine at the table of the king and we see where things are headed. Don't lose sight of that when you go back out into the world. Don't be ashamed. Peter's writing this letter at the end of his life, as I've already mentioned, and this point is probably especially close uh, to home for Peter. Okay, remember Peter's own biography. Uh, this was something that he repeatedly struggled with. Jesus spoke of the suffering that uh, he had to endure. He was telling his disciples about uh, how it was necessary for the Christ to suffer uh, and be raised in glory. And remember, Peter was the first to oppose this plan. He was not on board with the plan of suffering. This shall never happen to you, Jesus. Of course, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You're not on board with the plan. And even after that, when Jesus had been arrested and people started asking Peter questions about his involvement with Jesus, a servant girl was asking Peter these questions. And Peter's cowering. He's ashamed. A little girl is asking him, and Peter's ashamed. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know him. Peter was ashamed, and he denied that he knew Jesus three times. Jesus, of course, restores Peter and gives him a ministry in his church. And even after he was restored by the Lord, Peter blundered again. Hey, remember in Galatians, Paul recounts how Peter feared the circumcision party. Hey, he was afraid when they came uh, that they would see him eating with Gentiles. He was ashamed to be eating with Gentiles. He drew back when they came. Paul had to oppose Peter and set him straight. So Peter knows, he knows, especially the temptation of being ashamed of the name of Christ in the face of persecution. But here at the end of his life, he's writing to the church to admonish them, do not be ashamed, do not be afraid. Glorify God in the name of the Messiah. Jesus said, whoever is ashamed of me in my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But he also said, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. So don't be ashamed to suffer for the name of Christ. Third, Peter wants us to rejoice when we suffer, to rejoice when we suffer as a Christian. Look at verse 13. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Rejoice when you suffer for being a Christian. How can Peter say this? Are Christians supposed to just enjoy pain and rejection? How is it that the apostles in Acts can leave the council rejoicing uh, because they received a beating for preaching in Jesus' name. Acts 5 says that they were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Okay, they considered it an honor. They were counted worthy to suffer dishonor. Peter says here that when we suffer for the name of Christ, we are sharing in Christ's own suffering. What does that mean? In an important sense, Christ's suffering is unique. He suffered once for sins, 
the righteous for the unrighteous. His suffering atones for our sins and results in us being forgiven and having peace with God. And yet there's a sense in which our suffering for the name of Christ is a sharing in his suffering. Our suffering is somehow caught up into his and transformed because of our union with him. You could think about it this way. Remember in the book of Acts when Saul was persecuting the church. This was before he became Paul. He was persecuting the church. He was zealous against these people who claimed the name of Christ. And Jesus comes to him, knocks him off his horse. And what does he say to him? He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? Persecuting the body of Christ is persecuting Jesus. Persecuting the church is persecuting Jesus, who is the head of the church. The church experiencing suffering is sharing in the suffering of Jesus. This persecution is happening on his account. The apostles were rejoicing because they considered their persecution to be evidence that they were united to the Messiah. The council was treating them the way they treated Christ. That means the council saw the work of the Spirit in the apostles in the same way they saw him work through Christ. They were seeing Jesus and they treated him the way they did Jesus. This is why Peter alludes to Isaiah 11, which was our first Old Testament lesson. This is a passage about the Spirit resting on the Messiah. It's a passage about the Spirit coming upon the root of Jesse. But Peter says in verse 14, if you, the church, are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Okay, that spirit that rests on the Messiah rests on the body of the Messiah. Rests on those who are united with the Messiah. When you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are walking in the steps of Christ by the same spirit. And if we are conformed to his image and his suffering, Peter says, we know that we'll be conformed to his image and his glory and vindication. That suffering that we experience, that we share in with Christ leads to glory. This is the pattern of Christ's life. First suffering and then glory and vindication. And we follow that pattern of Christ in our lives, following in his steps of suffering unto glory. And just as suffering and glory was necessary for Christ, so for those who are in union with him and bear his name, the same path is necessary. We who have been baptized into Christ are in union with him and are being conformed to that image. And this includes sharing in the path of glory to suffering. Peter says, when you suffer as a Christian, rejoice and be glad, for you are blessed and the Spirit is with you. The fourth thing that Peter tells us about suffering as a Christian is that we shouldn't bring it upon ourselves because of our own foolishness or sin. You can start to think about this and say, well, suffering, that's, that's good. I'm supposed to suffer like Jesus. So let's go out there and make some people mad and get some suffering, right? Let's get some hostility. Let's attract some hostility to the church. Peter says, hold on a second. There's a caveat here. Verse 15, He says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. While suffering for the name of Christ brings blessing and honor, Peter warns 
that there is no glory or honor if your suffering comes about as a, as a result of your own misconduct or your own foolishness. In fact, there's a kind of shame in that suffering. You can't commit a crime such as theft or murder and claim the government's just persecuting me because I'm a Christian. If you're stealing from your employer or being a nuisance at work and you get fired, don't try to claim that you're some kind of Christian martyr. Hey, Peter says don't suffer as a result of sin. In this case, you're not bearing the name of Christ faithfully, but getting the consequence you deserve for your action. Don't suffer as a result of doing evil. Peter already pointed out in chapters 2 and 3 that the Gentiles are speaking out against them. They're calling them evildoers. They're uh, bringing, you know, bringing all these charges against them. And they're presumably a kind of slander, something that's not true. Peter says, don't let their accusations have any kind of weight to them. Don't bring persecution on yourself through evil doing. It's interesting that Peter adds the word meddler to this list. It's obvious to us that theft and murder and evil doing are wrong and worthy of punishment. But what does he mean by meddler? What is a meddler? The word means something like overseeing someone else's business, being a busybody, in other words. In context here, Peter is talking about Christians who are meddling in the affairs of their pagan neighbors, and they're receiving backlash for it. Okay, they're sticking their nose in other people's business, and their nose is getting hit, getting knocked. Peter says, don't do that. Don't be a meddler. Don't bring persecution on yourself because you are intruding upon the affairs of outsiders. Living in obedience to Christ's word and commands is going to be offensive. Okay, you're going you're gonna to have some hostility as a result of that. We should not add to that offensiveness by meddling. This is an, only an attempt to attract hostility. Don't bring persecution on yourself through foolishness or sin. The fifth truth that we should see with respect to our suffering is found in verse 17. Peter says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner. Okay, when suffering comes, Peter says, remember, judgment has begun. Judgment has begun. And not only that, that it has begun with us. It began with us. God judges his own house first. We usually think of judgment as a kind of condemnation in the sense of uh, you know, being judged uh, in a condemning sense, but that's not the only sense that the, that the scriptures have for this word. Here we should think of judgment in terms of evaluation or assessment. God assesses his own house first before he assesses those outside the house. God judges his own house first and then the world. Peter's already said in chapter 2 that we are the temple of God, that we are God's house, his, his temple, as we're united to Christ who is the true temple. And we're the living stones who are being built up into a spiritual house to offer sacrifices of praise to God. And all of this is connected with the refiner's fire metaphor that we talked about a moment ago. Malachi 3 and 4 presents the picture to us of God as the refiner who comes to his house, the temple. Listen again to a few verses here in chapter 3. Malachi 3 says, 
the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. In Malachi 3 says that God is coming to his house in judgment. The refiner is coming to remove impurities among his people. The fire of God's presence comes to his house, the temple, first to purify those who serve in his presence and to prove them, but then it moves out in judgment to consume the godless and the disobedient. Peter is connecting that prophecy from Malachi 3 to the church's suffering under the name of Christ. God is working out his purposes to purify his people through the persecution. This is profound what Peter's saying here, if we connect all of these dots. Rather than viewing suffering as a Christian as a mark of God's absence, this passage should reassure us that suffering, in fact, entails the opposite. It means that God is present. When we suffer in this way, it is a mark that God is present with us, purifying us into the kind of spotless, glorious bride that he wants us to become. This is the spirit of glory resting upon you and bringing great blessing to you. This is why Peter can tell us to rejoice when we suffer. We can rejoice because we know that God is with us and that God is working in us for our blessing. God is present with you. Now, God's refinement is not an easy process. It's difficult. Being a Christian does not mean having an easy life. We've already established that. You're going to meet resistance in your own heart, in the world, in trials. But genuine faith will persevere by God's grace. And he overrules our present sufferings to our eternal good. His spirit enables us to endure and sanctifies us, makes us holy through this suffering. When the curtain is pulled back and all see Jesus in his glory, we will not be put to shame. Those who cling to Christ will not be put to shame. But what about those who rejected Christ? Those who do not know God? Scripture is also abundantly clear about that. For those who do not cling to Christ, the flame of God will consume them. Revelation 21, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, and as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. For those who do not obey the gospel of God, as Peter puts it, the outcome is a very different kind of fire, a different kind of judgment. But for those who hope in Christ, yes, the suffering is painful. It's hard. The path is narrow and difficult. 
But as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Hey, by remembering the judgment of the Lord, we look to the eternal reality, to the things unseen, and we stay focused on the big picture. The last thing, very briefly here, that Peter wants us to, wants us to do when we suffer as Christians is to entrust ourselves to our faithful creator. This is verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Peter again reminds us that this suffering does not happen apart from God's will. And God, who is faithful, works suffering for our blessing and our good. Peter calls God our creator. He reminds us that God made us. He reserves the right to do with us what he pleases. He can use us to glorify him in whatever way he deems best or sees as fit. But he also says that he is a faithful creator. He's trustworthy. He keeps his promises. He's a good father. Because we belong to him and are united to his son, he promises to work all things for our ultimate good while at the same time working for his glory. And we can confess with the hymn writer, whatever my God ordains is right, his holy will abideth. Peter has in mind persecution here, but we know that God works all testing in our lives to strengthen our faith and to purify us. We have his promise that he is working all things to conform us to Christ's image, and thus ultimately for our eternal good. Jesus said, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. God is our faithful creator, our faithful creator, even the birds do not fall to the ground apart from him. We can entrust our whole lives to him, our very souls. We can continue to do the good that he has called us to do, no matter what the cost. So whether we encounter times of affliction or times of ease and comfort, we know that God is with us. His spirit of glory rests upon us and is forming us into a spotless bride for his son. So don't be surprised when the hostility comes. Don't be ashamed to bear Christ's name. Rejoice when you are insulted or slandered for Christ's name. Because you are blessed, you are counted worthy to share in Christ's suffering. Don't bring suffering upon yourself through evil doing or meddling. Remember that judgment has begun and that Christ will return to judge the living and the dead. And entrust yourself to your faithful creator, knowing that he is working for your good and will never leave you or forsake you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.